Hello and welcome to Women on Top with Holly Madasser, where the conversations focus on women, wealth, and social change. Holly and her guests, who represent many different fields, engage in transparent conversations that reflect professional and personal struggles as well as accomplishment. Some are making strides to address societal problems. Others have chipped away at the proverbial glass ceiling. All are supporting the financial future and well-being of women. Through these conversations, we learn about embracing a purpose and lifting others up while ensuring our own future success. Now, here's your host, Holly Madasser. Well, welcome everybody to another edition of Women on Top. Today, we have with us Tracy McNeil. Tracy is the CEO of Materna Medical, which is a medical device company that is geared toward women's health. Thank you for being here, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm especially excited to have you here today, mainly because even though you're a rock star, you're right here from North Carolina, right? So I am. I was born and raised in Chapel Hill, graduated from Chapel Hill High School. And, Excellent. Um, yep. And, and, up- went, and, and you went to Duke, didn't you? I did. I came back uh, as an adult and did my MBA at, at Fuqua at Duke. So yeah, so you're you're potentially a little conflicted. I know I'm the same <laughs> because I, I went know. to UNC and I live in Durham, five minutes from Duke and my son went to Duke. So it's an incestuous yep. crowd down here, but we're happy to call you one of our own. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm especially also excited to talk to you because, and for our women in the audience, and I hope you'll go into this some, women's healthcare has significantly lagged the industry in recent years. And I'm just delighted to learn of a company that is changing that statistic. So please tell us a little bit about women's healthcare in general, and then what Materna is doing. Sure, absolutely. Well, so it's a it, it, it should be 50% of healthcare, right? Women's health should be, should be half of all of it, right? Because we're half the population. Um, I think women's health for the, maybe the last 20 years or so has been seen as a niche, um, but I do think that's changing. Uh, and I think that there are a number of areas where it's changing. So certainly I think when people think of women's health, they typically would think of gynecology, fertility, contraception, things that are unique to to women's bodies. But there are also other kinds of uh, women's health where I think of diseases that uniquely affect women or affect women more commonly. So women are seven times more likely to have autoimmune diseases and migraines and uh, that that kind of stuff. And then there's also different ways in which normal types of healthcare affect the genders differently. So for example, you may have heard that to recognize a heart attack, you get the shooting pains down the left arm, right? And chest pain. That is how it manifests in men. And most clinical research has been done on men and a lot has not been done on women. Uh, so women's heart attacks are much more likely to manifest as a, a backache or, or nausea. And women don't realize that and then they don't get to the hospital as quickly. So those are the kinds of things that we're starting to see open up in uh, both entrepreneurism and, and investment. And so I'm really excited to be part of it. I'll pause there um, on, the, on the global issues of women's health and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what Matern is doing. 
Yeah, and, and so that's very intriguing to me. I think for a long time, other than the reproductive organs, the broader industry just thought that men and women were alike. And I think what I hear you saying is, as women, our, the diseases that we contract and the way that they manifest is actually often different from men. And so we have to do unique studies on women to be able to more effectively treat women. Is that kind of what I'm That's hearing? Definitely right. I've, I've even had a one of my uh, doctor colleagues said that in medical school, they were taught that the average patient was a 185 pound man. Oh. So, <laughs> so, so, right? <laughs> sort of start with the, it's, it's just a unique bias in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really, it's not just women, it's also um, ethnic and racial disparities in clinical research. So it, it does make the job of the entrepreneur more complex when you're thinking about designing clinical research that can look at sub-segments of the population that might be uniquely different. So um, it does make it more complicated. I work in gynecology. And so I don't have to worry about how that affects men. Um, so in, a, in some ways, so my job is- anyway. I mean, there might be a small segment of the population, but not many. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so I, I, we launched our first summit at Materna. We're working on empowering women to protect and restore their pelvic health. So we launched our first product, Millie, in uh, 2019. And Millie is a dilator used to help women who have a condition that's very rarely diagnosed. There's not a lot of clinical research on it. We're a pioneer in the field. Um, it's an incredibly common disease called a uh, condition called vaginismus. And it's essentially an involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor. Um, about half the market is menopausal. So the tissue gets drier, the tissue gets thinner, and then intercourse hurts, uh, or we just say maybe we wanted penetration. It could be, um, it could be a, a, a speculum or um, a partner, but in any case, wanted penetration hearts, so women begin to avoid it, and then the, it begins to contract, and it's um, it, the, the the canal actually shrinks. So it's a it's a dilator to help women uh, open it back up, and um, it de- you know the idea is to decrease pain, decrease anxiety, and allow women to return to their to reach their goals, whatever their goals are. Um, and so it's been a really successful product. We're um, just filing with FDA to expand the claims. And uh, I'm really excited to be the brand that's defining that condition. The, the, the issue that we find with our patients for Millie is that on average, they've been suffering for five years before they get a diagnosis. Um, they get asked all kinds of obnoxious things like maybe you're gay, you know, maybe you don't like your husband, um, questions about their, their trauma history, things like that, which what we're, what we're learning in our clinical research is irrelevant to what's happening for them. Mm-hmm. And so they all think they're the only ones, but we estimate it to be a very large market, larger than the erectile dysfunction market. Wow. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've noticed as as an investment advisor that works with women is that women are just generally more timid about certain topics. Um, For example, if a woman gives a large donation to a a charity, she generally might want to do it anonymously Whereas if a man gives, he wants to have naming rights on the building. Right. And so, you know, I think right. women are um, more timid about asking questions surrounding their investments, for example, because they're fearful that they're going to be viewed as ignorant when in fact studies show that women are better investors than men. Mm-hmm. And, and so 
I wonder if some of the lagging in the medical profession about women's health issues is that women are more timid about expressing um, things that might be more sensitive topics. I mean, it, it's just not that comfortable to go to the doctor and talk about the pelvic floor. No. Or no. pain at intercourse or any yeah. kind There's of- so many. There's so many layers that, there to what, what you just said. I mean, just in terms of why women would donate anonymously. Well, they might, they, they might start with a charitable donation instead of making an investment, right? That would increase right. their wealth, right? We're, right. And then when they do it, they do it anonymously. I think that in our society, where women are taught to take up less space, right? Mm -hmm. From being thinner to being, you know, not offending people and, and, um, and not calling attention to themselves unless it's for their beauty. Right, so it's it's complicated. So there's that layer, and then at a broader level, all patients often have shame in talking to a doctor about their condition. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, that's just from having a, a you know a runny nose to whatever condition you know people have. Um, but with the with a woman's uh, down there, as we say, um, there's not <laughs> even a polite word for it. Right. Yeah. Women are taught never to a lot of girls are taught never to refer to it at all. Yeah. Don't look at it, don't touch it. It's not, it's not polite. And so when we end up with um, very common conditions, extremely common conditions, women don't what the studies show women don't talk to their doctors about it. And you know, and we, we do have another product I'd love to talk about, but just to kind of wrap up on Millie, as as I mentioned, about half the population is menopausal and a quarter of the population are cancer survivors. So when women are treated for ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, even breast cancer, they'll receive radiation vaginally. And then they also may get chemotherapy and the chemotherapy drugs put them into a sudden menopause. So they end up with the same, same issues. So if the oncologist is open-minded enough, thoughtful enough to tell the woman that she might end up with this condition, um, they're looking at very little in the way of clinical research and not a great set of options to, for, the, for the patient. And then the other quarter of the population is really um, what I would just call miscellaneous pelvic pain patients. They may have Crohn's disease or fibroids, or endometriosis or chronic yeast infections, those kinds of things. And, and then, but what, in all cases, they just don't realize that chronic tightness of the pelvic floor is an incredibly common condition. I mean, we would estimate there's millions and millions of women in the United States, just in the US with these conditions. So, um, but what we've seen is that even though half the population is menopausal, 80% of OBGYNs graduating from medical school, 80% have no training in menopause. Oh, that's so disheartening. That just is unbelievable, especially because I feel like women in our society are taught to kind of be ashamed, you know, and not just ashamed at their sexuality, but just shame that something with their body isn't working right as though they were personally responsible for this issue. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just normal, absolutely. right? You've got lower estrogen, you go through menopause. I mean, this is what happens to the body. We have yeah. treatments for this. So this is nothing to be ashamed of. More and more, we have more treatments. And as we begin to develop innovation and get it funded and then have solid exits where investors make a lot of money, I think that, and that's really the, the positive cycle that we're trying to create. Um, so that's Millie. And our second product is in clinical research right now. Um, it's in a, a clinical trial called the EASE trial. 
Um, and it is a, a product that is used in acute labor and delivery. So in the hospital, while a woman is in labor to prevent pelvic floor injury during childbirth. So what we've learned is that 50% of women will have incontinence or prolapse by the time we're 55. And sometimes people don't know those, ter those terms, but incontinence is when you, you, know, you pee when you sneeze or when you go running or when you don't want to, basically peeing when you don't want to. Prolapse is, um, and women will sometimes joke about the incontinence, uh, especially as the Gen Xers are, are getting older and, and, um, and we're more open and the millennials are, are more open as well. But um, prolapse is when the pelvic floor, the, the muscles that hold the organs in place are damaged and the organs fall out of place. So the bladder can fall over, the uterus can actually come outside of the body. Oh, okay. Women don't joke about prolapse. And how, it, how prevalent is that condition? It's the number one reason that women are admitted to nursing homes in old age. It's incredibly common. 11% of all women, 11% will have a pelvic floor surgery. These are really, really common conditions. So we, and, and women are nine times more likely to have those conditions if they've had a baby vaginally. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had a lot of people talk to me about, well, why didn't my doctor say anything? And, um, you know, I don't know, but my made up answer to that is that I, there's nothing for it, right? right. We're, we're what's called a de novo device. So we're, we're the first product like this to try to prevent the injuries in the first place. It's really simple. It's like a yoga stretch on the birth canal before the baby comes through. It's pretty big. It goes to eight centimeters, which is, you know, not as big as a baby's head. A baby's head is 10 centimeters, but you know, what it does is slowly stretch the muscles, mm -hmm. leveraging decades of data in physical therapy that when you stretch muscles slowly, they don't tear. Right. And so when Tracy, tell me about as a woman who's given birth, and I know most of our audience has the how the episiotomy fits with this, because every I, for my generation, anyway, everyone had that you had an episiotomy that made the opening bigger so that the baby could come through. Did that actually prevent this condition? And is that now avoidable with this product, Millie? Yes, uh, so, so really I would say there's two different kinds of injuries that we're talking about. One is called tearing, you know, perineal tearing, lacerations, um, and that's really what episiotomies are designed to prevent. Those are the, that's the visual tissue that you can see and feel. Um, the other injuries that we're talking about, and these are really the ones that cause the incontinence and prolapse, that's on the inside and you can only okay. see it with ultrasound. So that's really the muscles themselves, like your hamstrings, but they're, all, they're right. the ones that hold all your organs in place inside. So um, you can't see those. And this is a relatively new set of data. I would say in the last decade or so, the, the um, connection between that, those pelvic floor injuries, so, so not just the, the tissue, but the muscles um, have, have been conclusively linked to childbirth injuries. And so going back to episiotomies, generally speaking now, episiotomies are not performed. Um, the episiotomy rate now is about one to 2% in hospitals. Wow. Um, what they've seen over time is that making it a straight line actually makes it harder for the tissues to, to meld. Yeah. So when, when those tissues tear, they get kind of ragged edges, but then those ragged edges pull together better. So, and also where you cut and how you cut uh, has a big effect on um, the future of a woman's life. Uh, 
And so generally speaking, we don't, we don't. Okay, do I'm, I'm now depressed. I so. know, I know. We wish, well, at least they're, at least they're studying it. Okay, <laughs> because I thought this was a good thing until this moment, and I'm sure many of my audience members did too. Well, I mean, if 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 a woman heals, then who cares, right? Right. So, but I think that um, so if you feel good and a, and a woman feels good, then they did it just fine for you. So no need yeah. to worry. Uh, um, really, yeah. the the um, the the internal injuries are mostly what we're working on. Although the um, the the perineal lacerations is a secondary endpoint for us, and we are looking at that, and we. We think we can affect it, um, but, but we'll see. So I was very intrigued when I learned about Millie because it was about as simple as the wheel and it's <laughs> taken about as long to develop, right? I mean, yeah. the wheel was this ingenious invention that took millennia to develop and has changed our world. And Millie is just sort of this tube-like thing that you put in and it expands right it, it's it's it, there's it's not high tech I mean there's nothing about it that you're like wow we had to wait until this year to develop this I but, know. but it was never developed so I know how who came up with this idea how did it come about well, you know, it's it's interesting. So we we started with the childbirth device. That was the first concept, really working with the unmet need of these childbirth injuries. And we came up with the technology and it became our intellectual property where with sort of the expanding arms. Um, do you want to see the devices? Have we ever shown you the devices? Yeah, okay. yeah, no, I'd love to see it. All right, I've got them here. So, so this is the childbirth device. So this, this part goes inside the anatomy and this okay. is at the introitus. So these are the arms that expand. So this is the, the end that's facing the baby's head. And then these two arms basically sit on the pubic bone and these two arms expand out and stretch the soft tissue. And, and how, like how long does it, sorry to interrupt, but how long you said that this is done slowly as opposed to abruptly when a baby's head comes out. So how right. long is slowly? <laughs> About an hour. An hour, okay. So it's really boring to watch. Um, the, and mom has an epidural and is just taking a nap. Yeah. So she can't feel anything. So epidural rates are about 70 to 80% in the United States. So most women get them anyway. Yeah. Um, and then, so what happened was uh, we, we, we created this technology and you can kind of see the expanding arms. This one's just partially open. Mm -hmm. um, so almost like an umbrella action. And yeah. we had some, some OBGYNs that looked at it and they said, you know, if you could make that smaller, you could really change the standard of care that's very poor for millions and millions of women. And so we created Millie. And I remember the first time I saw Millie, I was like, oh my gosh, it looks like a sex toy. And I had, <laughs> I had mixed feelings because I worked in polite parts of healthcare, <laughs> like artificial. I thought, I thought it looked like a lint, lint remover, you know, one of those. Yeah, romans. right. It does a little bit, right? <laughs> so, so this little wand goes in the anatomy and then the patient controls the expansion, but inside this wand, it's covered in silicone to make it comfortable. But inside are very thin expanding arms. And so she can control the expansion one millimeter at a time. It expands inside the anatomy. I don't have an example of the uh, sort of 1890s level technology that we're replacing, but it's essentially like a set of dildos that she's supposed to, in, in increasing sizes, that she's supposed to jam in to open it back up. And women find them, they're very upsetting. So first of all, this is a very discreet case. It has a little USB port. That's it, right? So she can have this in her bathroom and maybe nobody sees it and, and it's no big deal. Um, 
the set, it's like a lot of things and you have to wash them and, and it's super embarrassing. And for, for patients who fundamentally have pain and anxiety about penetration, you know, having to do that and jump between yeah. sizes, I mean, just adherence is low. Women hate these things. They're just, I mean, imagine you're, you're recovering from uterine cancer. You've had a hysterectomy. Now you've, you've got, you know, your tissues are fried and you're, and your, your canal's closing up and you're, and you're given this set of things that you're supposed to, I mean, women take one look at it and go, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. So who designed it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, people would make the joke, right? Probably a guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know who originally came up with the idea of jamming different sizes in, but it's pretty old, old, uh, old school. And, you know, we think this is just a simple, as you as you mentioned, it's a simple electromechanical device. Um, and, you know, future gen, the, the next gen will have an app so that she can kind of see her progress and, um, you know, gamify it a little bit, make it a little easier and help with the mind body connection, meditations and that kind of stuff. So got to oh, raise I, really, I really like that because I think when you can see your progress, it's incentivizing, right? So, hey, I, I made this work better and this is going to help me. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I am fascinated by the fact that you're the CEO of this company as a woman. I, I assume that it was not in the cards that a man was going to want to be the CEO of this company. Is that <laughs> was that a criteria for getting the job that you had to be a woman? You know, I think they did want a woman for this company. But um, interestingly, the, the company was founded by men and was run by men for about 10 years. Wow. And they did an amazing job. They designed these products and got them through the clinical trial and uh, the regulatory and the intellectual property I and mean, did a ton of stuff. And, and our founder is really, was a man ahead of his time. And I think will go down in history as a great contributor to women's health. However, um, the irony is not lost on me uh, because I've been, you know, the only woman as an engineer and a, and a finance person in m and I am often the only woman in the room. And so I've been spending my whole career saying it doesn't matter what you look like, anybody can do the job. But I think that this company really did need a woman running it. And, um, it's, and it's, a little, it's a little tricky to be talking about the pelvic floor as a man to investors is my guess. Right, <laughs> right. And, and we do have too much of men intervening in women's health instead of empowering women to do their own right. self-care, right? So that, that there was just a fundamental optics problem there. But I think, I mean, our founder was just one of the, the goodest men you'll, you'll ever meet. Um, and he really is very passionate about making the world a better place. And, you know, as an, as an investor, you'll understand, um, and, a, and a financial leader, probably 95% of our cap table is still men. Yeah, no, I, I do understand that, which is why it's so refreshing to see a, a woman at the helm of a of a company that's a startup and actually the acquirer of venture capital money. So <laughs> I think the stats on that is, is it something like 2.2% of all venture capital money goes to, to women. And so you're in that small minority and you're doing as a woman, something to help women's health, which we need desperately. Right. Oh, I know I'm the trifecta. Like I'm the, I'm a, I'm a woman CEO working in women's health and I'm a woman investor. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, but I live in my own echo chamber. So to me, this seems very like a very normal thing. Right. But, right. Um, but so it's I, not. Haven't, I haven't seen a lot of adversity. I, I haven't, 
I haven't felt like I've experienced discrimination from investors. I'm, maybe on the contrary, I think investors are starting to realize that this is a really hot area yeah. and that they look a little old fashioned, possibly sexist and racist if they only continue to invest in white men. Yeah. Um, so what yeah. I see is kind of the opposite that they're looking for good investment opportunities for women-led companies and minority-led companies um, and, and women's health companies. So I, I do think that the pandemic this past year has really brought, let's say, the, the social issues surrounding exclusion and access out in a way that maybe we didn't expect. I mean, it started out as a healthcare crisis, and then we found that more women were losing their jobs than men. And we found that if you were Black or Hispanic, that you were more likely to contract the disease and die. And so sort of lack of access to healthcare and, and to good jobs that would let you work from home became front and center. And so I, I do think that we're, we've become more conscious socially as a country. Hopefully that helps women in the industry in femtech. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's still a lot of work to do, but I saw a lot of movement forward in this last couple of years. So we're fortunate to be a company in residence at Fogarty Innovation, which is an incubator here in the Bay Area. And one of our sister companies who uh, left the, in, the innovation maybe a couple of years ago is also working in women's health. They're called Alidia Health, and they had an amazing exit. And they're, um, so they sold for $240 million. Wow a single 510k product like Millie. Wow, and how did they sign up for that, Tracy? <laughs> <laughs> I know. If you, well, you know, what's interesting is we were founded the same year as Olivia and we had a lot of the same social headwinds. They're working on postpartum hemorrhage, okay. which is um, disproportion, which disproportionately affects women of color. Black women are much like, more likely to die in the United States from postpartum hemorrhage than white women. And oh. the US overall is 55th in the world. From maternal mortality. So there is a ton of work to do there. Mm -hmm. And so you would think Olivia would have had no problems getting funded, but they did. They had all the same issues we did in the early years. But like us since 2016, you know, I think the Me Too movement, um, I think femtech was, was coined as a term in 2016. Um, you know, I think more and more people are seeing that, that when we invest in women, we all win. It's not that right. only women win, the whole, all of society wins when women are right. healthy and happy. Right. Um, and uniquely for us, the fact that Olivia had such a nice exit is a great exit comp for us. And because investors do like to see, okay, who else made money in your space? And we have an excellent example of that. Well, that's encouraging. Um, I love that story. So I um, have been talking to a lot of women on this podcast. And one thing that has come up repeatedly is this issue of kind of not embracing the fact that you're a woman. It's almost like, you know, if you're naturally inclined to wanna a, a start a clothing line, but somehow you think you have to, um, you know, be in the STEM space to be taken seriously. And I guess I wonder if you had any mixed feelings about as a woman, being that person who worked at a women's medical device thing that has to do with women's issues? Or did you feel like, you know, to, to really be somebody, you had to work as the CEO of some company that's doing hedge fund investing, oh. the more traditionally male-oriented kind of 
a, a job. So was that an issue for you? Because because I think personally that women should just embrace the fact that they're women and work in spaces that impact and help their gender instead of shying away from that. I, I agree with you completely. I think it's complicated and deeply personal. Like each person has to figure out how she wants to do it. Um, because inevitably you are gonna be confronting the headwinds of the patriarchy. And right. some people don't like it when you do that. Right. <laughs> so I think we've all, I, I think you know, at a high level, you have to think through how you wanna use your political capital. Right. And, and, how, and where you wanna challenge things without creating, without destroying and without um, creating more drama. Without um, making yourself, you know, the topic of discussion in a negative way. Exactly, and alienating right. people, because ultimately what we're trying to do is bring people together, men and right. women and everybody right. in between, right? But I did have, I guess part of my origin story at Materna was, it, it's I think maybe worth sharing. So at an, so with my engineer mind, I was looking, I was doing due diligence on this company for about four months. I, I liked, every time I learned something more, I got more interested, you know, this, this is a huge market with almost no competition. And I never trust engineers and entrepreneurs that say they don't have competitors, right? Right. <laughs> but women's health is a little bit like that. Like there's parts of women's health that are crowded, but not this particular space. Um, so fertility, for example, is a very crowded space. Um, dealing with the symptoms of incontinence is a pretty crowded space. I'm trying to prevent it? Nobody. Just wide open space over here. So, um, you know, at, just at that level, I'm like, well, this is interesting. And then Oh, and we've got good clinical data. Oh, and we've got good IP. Oh, and we've had some good conversations with FDA. Oh, we're already on the market and we're getting you know, good customer acquisition costs. So, so much risk had been removed, but my big reservation, um, and I remember I was talking to my sister who lives in Durham. Um, Yay. Yep, and she went to UNC. <laughs> Smart girl, Smart girl. I know. I know. Um, but you know, she's, she's got the same Myers-Briggs type as Nelson Mandela. And so I was talking to her and I said, I, um, I just don't know how I feel about being the vagina CEO. You know, like that's just, um, I'm, I was definitely having thoughts about like, well, what would my network think? Cause I have, to your point, spent the entire entirety of my career ignoring the fact that I was a woman. Right. Um, and it just, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And, um, and so really fitting into the, you know, more of the patriarchal type discussions, you know, we'd talk about sports. And so I learned about sports and we, you know, we talk to each other those ways and, and, you know, you fit in. So, and I still do that. I'd like sports. Um, but I, my sister did not laugh when I talked about being the vagina CEO. She said, you know, I see why you're devaluing that in your head because our entire society devalues that. Oh, that was painful. Yeah. I know. And I was like, Ooh, I was, I, I was making a joke, but it was covering up this thing. And I didn't realize that I was in fact, totally devaluing it in my head. And, um, and that's been part of the issue for, for women's health forever, right? Like if I have shame about it, how are we ever going to get the treatment to the patients that need it? So I realized that I was going to have to go first. Um, I have learned how to give the pitch without ever saying the V word. You have. I have it's learned, all about the pelvic floor. <laughs> it's all about the pelvic floor, the birth canal. Like there's, there's lots of ways to talk about it. Pelvic pain. Um, I've noticed that women don't like the word either. It's not just yeah. men. It, um, so, and you know, what's interesting is that our childbirth device is much, much more relatable for people than our pelvic pain device. Pelvic mm -hmm. pain, 
while it's better than trying to work on women's pleasure, uh, you know, it does touch on some of the taboo in our society around women's sexuality. And so um, often people will tend to want to talk more about our childbirth device, but but more and more, I'm finding that, um, especially as the menopausal issues become, I mean, they're in the news all the time, all yeah. the time. It's in, it's in sitcoms now. It's on Netflix. People are talking about, the, I have the perimenopause. You know, people are making jokes about it, and it's getting out there into the common lexicon. And I, you know, I really think that that it's it's going to be a good time over the next ten years for women's health. Well, I certainly hope so, because um, isn't this how the species procreates? I mean, what is it to be ashamed of, right? <laughs> we are important in the procreation our, thing. Our sexuality is supremely important to the survival of the species. <laughs> right. And most men are happy. I mean, men are always happier when their partners are happy, right? Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants their wives' lady parts to not be working. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and the women don't want that either, right? Women don't want that. Men don't want that. Everybody wants women to be happy and healthy. Exactly. So um tell us if if you can, have do you feel in your role that it's harder for you as a woman CEO than it might be a male counterpart? Or do you feel like that distinction is just not there at this point? I think at my age and my experience and with my track record, it, I really don't, I don't get that, you know, it, it's not harder for me. Um, but I do think it's harder for the younger women, you know, it, you know, you take someone, cause I do, I, I have some mentees and um, I, I both met both male and female. And I, um, I find that, you know, I, I can't imagine trying to do what I'm doing at the age of 26. Yeah. People do. And they have, and then some of them are really good at it. And, um, you know, I think that maybe that in that age bracket, it's probably a lot easier for guys to come across as commanding the room and knowing what they're doing, even though they don't. And, um, and women, you know, tend to, <laughs> can, I, can I get that in writing? <laughs> Never mind. I've got you recorded. So nobody knows what they're doing at 26. <laughs> There's no, you're just hacking your way when you're doing it at 26 and you know, you've got good instincts and maybe you've got good advisors. Maybe you, you, you know, you, you hit on a really important thing and you just did it better than the other person. I mean, all kinds of good things can happen to make 26 year old CEOs super successful. But I think, you know, all things being equal, a black woman standing up there and doing it and a white guy standing up there doing it both from MIT. I think it's going to, people will perceive him and it's not, I don't even think it's as complicated as, as sexism or racism. I think it's what I would just call unconscious bias. Yeah. In our society, we know what investors look like. They look like white guys. Right. We know what CEOs look like. They look like white guys. There's more CEOs of public tra publicly traded companies named John than there are female CEOs. Oh, goodness. That's an <laughs> intriguing statistic. I love that. I, I do think that, and maybe this is just my generation, and I hope it's not like this for the millennials, but there is a point at which, I don't know, maybe around 45 to 50, where suddenly a woman seems like she finds her voice and does command the room in a different way than she did when she was 20. Definitely. So, I don't exactly know what that what that is, and maybe that same thing happens to men, but it, it just feels like there's a maturity and a wisdom that comes about that gives you that confidence 
Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I, I don't know that it happens by default, but I do think it comes with practice to really, I would call it claiming your power, stopping asking for permission. Is it okay yeah. with you if I'm a CEO? Right, right. <laughs> Just be a CEO. Right. Own your success, own your power, own your opinions. And in my industry, I say own your wealth because Definitely. what I really want my women investors and investors all over the world, you know, in the U U.S., women control about $20 trillion of wealth. And, you know, that rivals the national debt. This is, this is a huge number. And yet <clears throat> most of my women investors view themselves in a silo and they're worried about being a bag lady, that they're going to run out of money. And I mean, let's face it, if you're worried all the time about what can go wrong, it's not exactly empowering. But right now, women control two thirds of the nation's wealth. And I think they're in a unique position to make a difference with that wealth. And I'm not saying give money to philanthropy, but invest in women led companies, invest in healthcare that has to do with women's health or whatever your passion is, own your wealth and do something with it. What have you found is most persuasive in helping women get more aggressive with their investments? Oh, this is a great question that you ask. And I'm basing my answer on an article that I read in The Economist. Generally speaking, when you're talking about women and investments, they're perceived as being more conservative than men. Studies actually show that it's not that they're more conservative, it's that men are over-optimistic. But let's just go with the idea that they're more conservative. When it comes to something that women are passionate about, so let's say it's ESG investing, let's say it's investing in women entrepreneurs, they go off the risk spectrum. They are willing to take risks when it comes to something they care about because women generally don't compartmentalize. They're more holistic and they want their values, their investments, their money, everything to tell a consistent story about them. I agree with that completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me, um, my audience is probably boomer women. If you had one bit of advice or one ask from boomer women who are the ones that control the majority of the nation's wealth, what, what would it be, Tracy? Oh, I would, I would say, claim your power and speak up, talk to your daughters about whatever's going on with your pelvic health so that they can make better choices you know, break down those barriers, use the fact that you are far enough along in your life, you don't have anything to lose. You know, put yourself out there on behalf of the next generation and really normalize this conversation so that we can get these, get, get these conditions treated and, and bring women's health up to where it really should be. Yeah, amen to that. I think that's a beautiful place to stop and thank you so much for oh, you so much. sharing so your fun. story and some of your personal life and 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 for what you're doing for women and women's health more broadly thank you Tracy. Oh, and thank you for the work you're doing in women's investments it's so exciting thanks Holly. thank you okay bye-bye holly madasser cpa is a partner and senior wealth management advisor at stearns financial group an investment management firm with offices in Chapel Hill in Greensboro, North Carolina. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. 
Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Refer to brokercheck.finra.org for more information. This podcast is copyrighted and all rights are reserved. The content of this podcast is for information only and not intended to serve as financial, legal, medical, or any other form of professional advice.